This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, January 18th, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. There's been a coup in the leadership of this podcast. Sarah Abbott has taken over for the vacationing Taylor Schwink, and she's working from Nebraska. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great. It feels good to be in charge. I hope I make Taylor proud. Yeah. Uh, have you ever uh, have you ever heard of a uh, ball player named Wally Pipp? Yes, the infamous Wally Pipped. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And you know, you're Lou Gehrig in that comparison to Wally Pipp as Taylor. Who knows if he'll ever come back? Uh, <laughs> I'm Buster only. I'm taping from Montana, so there's definitely no East Coast, East Coast bias on the show this week for sure. Today, we'll be talking with Genevieve Beacom, who at age 17 recently became the first woman to pitch professionally in Australia. I sent a note to longtime big leaguer Peter Moylan, who is now the manager of the Melbourne Aces, and asked him about Genevieve in a direct message. Uh, and his answer was this She is so impressive on every level. And the more I get to know her, the more I think she has a chance to be special. I think the next step is strength. From my understanding, she just started lifting last year. So that will come. Mound presence won't be an issue for her. She's already very composed. I don't know what the right move is next. I just want to go to go to a good program, college or pro, where she is allowed to develop at her own pace. Sky is the limit. She's already got a fastball in the mid 80s, Sarah. Like, I, I mean, you're 17 years old and you're throwing that hard. You got a shot. I mean, that's crazy. I can't even imagine how much talent that would take and skill. And just like even genetics wise, how blessed she must be to be able to pull that off. Yeah, you you watch uh, I watch video of the the first outing that she had. She's got that classic lanky lefty, uh, very angular, you know, with a great breaking ball. So it'll be fun talking with her uh, about the journey ahead that she's got. Uh, Sarah Langs will also jump on. We'll be talking with Jeff Passon about the labor situation, which is well, same as always. <laughs> Some other news and notes as this lockout continues. Longtime pitcher Francisco Liriano retired. Travis Snyder, who played eight seasons in the big leagues as an outfielder, he has retired. Brad Osmus has joined the Oakland Athletics as bench coach for first-time manager Mark Kotze. He, of course, had previously been the manager of the Detroit Tigers and the Los Angeles Angels. He was uh, one of the candidates that the Mets talked to for their managerial opening. Sarah, what else you got? First, listen to Swagoo and Perk, an ESPN podcast led by its namesake hosts, Marcus Spears and Kendrick Perkins. With new episodes every Tuesday morning, Spears and Perkins will bring listeners the latest NBA and NFL news, as well as a look inside their lives, career journey with can't miss conversations. That's Swagoo and Perk. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. And also we have NBA Today hosted by Malika Andrews. It offers exclusive content Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, New Pacific. Get caught up with the latest from around the NBA on NBA Today on ESPN and ESPN apps. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. This is The Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs is a reporter and a producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Great to talk with you. So we both, uh, I'm sure that you probably didn't see uh, Genevieve pitch until that video of her first appearance professionally in Australia earlier this month. I'm curious about what your first reaction was when you saw a video of her on the mound. I mean, just how awesome this was. You know, I mean, I loved how so much of the coverage of her got to the point that she's there because she can get out, because she's good. You know, it's not supposed to be just to have that first woman to do this or anything like that, but just because she's there and awesome. And I think if you squint, if you don't see the hair, if you're not thinking about any of that, I would just say, wow, I want to see more videos of this person pitching, regardless of who they are. Yeah, the first thing I thought of, curious, first thing that jumped out at me was the curveball. I'm like, the curveball, I'm like, oop, spin rate right there. That's a good (laughs) curveball. Second thing that jumped out at me uh, was the sort of that classic left-hander look, like, uh, you know, the comp, uh, people in baseball always give comps. And for physically, I'm looking at Andrew Miller, you know, with that sort of long lefty and the delivery that she had. And the third thing is the mound presence which she just looked completely unflappable. And I, I'm going to ask her when I talk to her about the way she wears her cap, which is really low. You know, I kind of yeah. wonder if it's for a tunneling effect. Interesting. I can't wait to hear the answer to that when I listen back to the podcast. But I agree. I mean, there was really a presence there. It was just so much fun. And I love when we get to see things like that, you know, in January, you know, when we don't have baseball season here. Exactly. All right. Uh, in honor of her, I uh, want to get from you your top three players from Australia. And we'll go with number three first. 
So number three is Liam Hendricks, of course. You know, I'm sure that he might end up a little bit higher on this list by the time his career is over. But I was just looking at some different stats, counting stats, whatever else. 78 saves, which is the second most of any pitcher uh, from Australia. 639 strikeouts, which is the most. And, uh, you know, it's only because the two individuals ahead of him are, to me, so quintessentially part of the history of baseball, Major League Baseball in Australia, that he isn't number one yet. But I'm sure he will be very soon. Number two. Number two is Grant Balfour. And that's really because when I think of my own understanding and history of baseball in Australia, I think of him because when he was on the A's and just all throughout his career, I I say the A's because I distinctly remember reading an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about him one year when I was visiting my grandmother, who of course lived out in the Bay Area. And I just remember him really popularizing, I think for kind of this current generation of baseball fans, the idea that there could be players from there. And of course, there have been a handful of players from Australia, and we'll get to one who is really among the first. And that was, you know, in the 90s, and that was a separate era. But Grant Balfour, 84 saves, most of anybody uh, coming over from Australia, and just such a presence and such character. And I really think, uh, you know, a player who, if you saw him pitch, if you read some stories about him, really stuck out in your mind. Then, you know, Liam Hendricks, very similar in that way as well. You know, two really affable and different ways, uh, personalities that I think really stick with people. See, you're not saying, because you're too nice, you're not saying that the perception is they're a little bit crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the story that I remember reading in the San Francisco Chronicle was about the colorful language that Mr. Balfour used on the mound, which of course <laughs> was a big part of, I think, what gave him that national presence. I mean, I remember learning about him probably a year he made the all-star team and sort of learning about all of that. And I was a kid, you know, I was, or I guess I was a teenager, um, but it was a little bit scandalous, like, oh my gosh, you know, and of course- He's uh, dropping F bombs on the mound when he pitches <laughs> exactly <laughs> but again it's just memorable and i love that so much <laughs> and number one the greatest player of all time from australia dave nelson i mean it absolutely has to be you know most war of anybody coming out of australia catcher 105 home runs by far the most of anybody coming out of australia and of course he formed an all aussie battery with graham lloyd for the first time in april of 1993 those were the first two players of note to be from Australia. I mean, if you go on baseball reference, there are some guys from like the 1800s, kind of a different, um, a different uh, setup of baseball back then, let's say. So if we're really talking about modern baseball and everything, we're talking about him and we're talking about Graham Lloyd and Dave Nelson with everything he did in baseball. Uh, you know, he was the guy where they were first writing stories of, wow, how did a player who was born here end up in Major League Baseball? So he is my number one there. And I will say uh, that Peter Moylan, who I know was a podcast guest, I remember seeing him on Zoom at some point this season where you were talking to him and I was waiting for my turn. He would have been our number four. I just want to say based on the stats and seeing his name and knowing that he's part of this uh, community, I did want to give him that shout out as well. Manny Genevieve's manager. So you led right into that uh, perfectly, Sarah. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Genevieve Beacom, 
the first woman to pitch professionally in Australia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So tell me what the reaction's been since that event happened. Uh, what's the coolest thing uh, that you've experienced since that happened? Um, you know, I've had a couple of MLB players, you know, talk about my pitching mechanics and my uh, curveball, which was which was pretty cool. And, you know, I was on the MLB network, which was just unbelievable. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting this kind of reaction at all. You, you mentioned the players. Who, who, uh, who jumped out at you among the reactions you got and, and who were they? Uh, Luke Jackson. He was, he was definitely one of the big ones. Um, I can't name them off the top of my head, but, you know, I was talking to Pete Moylan about them, um, like just them tweeting and stuff, and it, it's just been crazy. So growing up, who was your favorite baseball team, your favorite player, or were you just – you didn't follow baseball that way? Um, when I grew up, my T-ball team was called the Orioles. So, you know, for a while I went for the Orioles. And then when Acuna played for the Melbourne Aces, then I and he went back and played for the Braves. I switched over to the Braves and I've just been a Braves fan ever since. So, yeah, but definitely Garrett Cole is probably my favorite player. What do you like about him? Oh, his delivery is just so nice, you know, and he's just he's just such a good pitcher to watch. Like, it's so clean, and I could watch him all day. So I always love to ask this question of pitchers. Uh, when they're young, uh, and when you were young, what was the moment that you realized that you had a special arm? Um, <clears throat> I think it was probably when I played in a youth women's competition, and I, I pitched in the final, and I got – I got 17 strikeouts that game and I think there was only one hit and one run or no run, sorry. And I think after that, I really, you know, I was like, oh, I could, pro I could probably do something with this, you know. What kind of reaction were you getting from others uh, when, when you had that game? What do you remember? Um, well, we won the gold medal game. So, you know, we we're all just celebrating because we, we beat New South Wales, which was, is kind of the rival team, rival state. So... I think we were just all celebrating as a team and that, that was the best part of it. You know, it wasn't really an individual accomplishment. It was, it was the team winning, which was awesome. What do you like about pitching? Striking people out. No, it's, it's, it's just fun. You know, um, you're, you're controlling the game. Nothing happens until you move or you, you throw the ball and it's just, it's you're you're in control and, you know what you're going to throw and you know what you're going to do. It's just, it's just really fun being up there and, you know, throwing your heart out and doing your best every time to help the team win. You know, that's a common denominator I've heard from so many pitchers that I covered as a reporter through the years, guys who are in the hall of fame. Now they love that control. They love the feeling of being uh, out on the mound and being able to dictate everything that happens during the course of the game. Yes. Yeah. Uh, your curveball that absolutely jumps out. When I first saw a video of you, I was like, "Woof!" <laughs> Tell me about how you learned your curveball. Um, I didn't really mess around with the grip that much. Uh, when I was like pretty young, you know, I just watch how people held it around my club, and I just I have a very gen generic grip. It's nothing crazy. I'm just on the top of the seams, and I I pulled out. I, I kind of watched a couple of videos when I was younger and I always remember like pulling a curtain, pulling a curtain down when I throw it. So 
yeah, I think I learned just by watching other people. It just worked from the start. I think, you know, I didn't have to mess around with it too much. I was going to say, and I, I sent this to, to Peter when I had sent him a direct message about it, told him I was getting ready to talk to you, that your curveball and the, you know, the nature of your left arm, it's like, yeah, you, you could probably wake up when you're 80 years old and throw a strike with a curveball because it just looks that natural. Uh, the first, I'm curious about what the first times you threw it, Mike Messina, who's a Hall of Famer, uh, he grew up pitching to his dad. And then he was, when he was about 14, 15 years old, he started to pit, spin a curveball. His father couldn't catch it. I got to believe that for you know folks who catching you, they probably were like, whoa, struggling to catch it. Tell me about that. Yeah, definitely, sir. I kind of I kind of played around with it, you know, when I was probably 13 and like because you know my pitching coach always told me not to throw it when I was when I was like 12 because he didn't want me to hurt my arm or anything. So I was mainly just throwing change-ups back then, but you know, when I when I was about 13, 14, I started messing around with it and I I got that big 12-6 snap kind of thing and ever since then it's just it's been my out pitch. It's just be my best pitch. I can't remember a time where I've had to really, you know, work on it to get a better break or anything. It's just kind of been there naturally always. Tell me the best reaction or from the hitter's perspective, the worst reaction that you ever saw from a hitter trying to hit your curveball. I've, I've had a lot of the the ducks and stuff, and then it's just the best when they, they freeze up, you know, and, and they can't hit it, you know. Sometimes I think there was one time I probably spiked it probably like 50 feet. I, I spiked it about two meters in front of the plate and he still swung. So that was, that was pretty awesome to watch. Yeah. Mariano Rivera, he would break hitters bats with his cutter. And sometimes when he got a bat bad, he would have to turn around and face the infielders because he was stifling laughter. How did you deal with that when you cut his strike out on a 50 foot curveball? Um, well, I, I knew, I knew the guy. So, you know, we were kind of just laughing at it. You know, I, I threw him three curveballs in a row and he swung at every single one, even if they were in the dirt or not. So, you know, I still make that joke to him this day. We kind of just laugh about it now. The best advice that you've gotten as you're developing as a pitcher. Um, Ooh, I think trying not to, uh, control like, guide it is something that I really had to work on, especially when I was, you know, um, in under 14s kind of thing. I would, I, I would really try to guide the ball and, you know, then I'd throw it softer and everything would kind of go out of whack. So I think the best advice I really ever got was just throwing the ball hard and, you know, not, not trying to dictate it too much because if I did, then my mechanics would kind of not be in rhythm and stuff like that. So definitely not guiding the ball is something that is really, it's like a trigger word to me, I guess, you know, it's like people have that stay back when they're hitting or like don't get out on your front foot. I think just don't guide the ball is my kind of trigger word to, you know, keep it all together and just throw. What's the hardest you've ever seen velocity? I, I love asking this to pitchers um, as they, uh, are building velocity. They like to turn and glance at the, the radar gun readings. I don't know if they're available in the ballparks that you're pitching in, you know, at the minor league parks, the, the big league parks here, they, they are, and you'll see pitchers turn around and like check what their velocities are. What, what's been your top velocity? Uh, and when you heard that, what was your reaction internally? Um, I think I, I threw 85 
last Wednesday actually when I was playing at a Victorian showcase kind of thing. And, you know, I, I, I did get pretty excited after the game because, you know, it's like it's, a, it's one step further. And, you know, last year I was only touching like 80, 82, 83. So, you know, it's, it's always nice to see that the hard work I'm putting in is actually going somewhere because, you know, last year I, I wasn't really close to even touching 85. And it's great to see the hard work that I'm doing paying off. Peter said that what uh, you've been doing uh, is some last year was the first time you started doing strength work. How do you think that's going to help you? I mean, I think it will help me a lot just because, you know, I don't have any major flaws in my mechanics. So I think the main way that I'm going to gain velocity is through my strength training, which is great because it means I don't have to focus on changing too much of my delivery and you know I don't have to get used to a new delivery I just kind of had to have to get stronger in that aspect which is probably I think the best thing that could happen you know I wouldn't want to have to fix my delivery and get stronger it's just I don't I have to focus on one thing and not both so I asked Justin Verlander when he was early in his career and it gave uh insight into sort of what his mindset was in terms of setting goals and I said what would you like to accomplish in your career in baseball? And he said, I want to do everything I can to make it uh, to the Hall of Fame. Uh, as you sit here today, what, what do you envision your baseball future? What's a goal for you? Um, oh, I don't know. I, I definitely want to, you know, play in America. You know, it's baseball's huge over there. So definitely playing in America is like a huge goal of mine, whether that be college or professionally. I think I'll just have to see, especially in, these couple of years coming up because I'm finishing my last year of high school but definitely I want to play professionally at some point in my life you know it's a game I love and to be playing it every day is just an amazing opportunity. So I have always uh since I started covering baseball lefties to me are always fascinating how they wear their hats uh you'll see lefty pitchers as you know they'll sort of cock it to toward first base a little bit, maybe to add a little bit of deception or they go a little bit the other way to see base runners. Uh, you are a left-hander. You wear your hat a little bit lower than I, you know, a, a typical pitcher. Tell me about your thought process there and how you wear your hat. It's just comfy, you know. I just, I, I don't really have a reason for wearing my hat low. I just, I have a small head, so most hats don't <laughs> fit me properly. So there's no yeah. real reason behind it. Okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. So much fun. It's going to be so much fun uh, following you and as you uh, make progress, uh, you know, from league to league. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. 
For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Jeff Passon covers baseball for ESPN. And, and Jeff, uh, just a reminder, please, what happened last week in the labor negotiations? Something finally happened, Buster. We actually had an offer put on the table. It had been 43 days since Major League Baseball and the Players Association uh, had had one of those dating back to December 1st, right before the lockout. And Major League Baseball uh, came not with a a full suite of items, but uh, with a few steps uh, the league believes in the right direction. The players did not see it quite that way. And uh, here we are in the same place we were really, which is uh, going nowhere fast. And and uh, the problem, of course, is that we're in the middle of January now. Uh, February is going to be here in a week and a half or so. And two weeks after that, uh, players are supposed to report for pitchers and catchers in spring training. And Boy, we're getting to the point now where if a deal is not struck soon and I see no reason that it's going to be, spring training is going to be delayed for major league players. If we, since we're in the middle of the football playoffs, I'll ask you to compare what's going on in the baseball negotiations <laughs> to a drive in the NFL. Uh, I would say that it kind of reminds me of an offense being third down and 10. Uh, and if you think of spring training as the end zone, uh, okay, uh, third down and 10, and there's about a minute and 20 seconds left. What do you think? Yeah, I think both sides have been running draw plays. Like that's where <laughs> we are right now. If we're going to really stretch the the football metaphor here, because uh, listen, it, it's great. Or, or I suppose you could argue that uh, both sides are, are throwing Hail Marys on third and 10 right now, because some of the things that the, the league has proposed, some of the things that the union has proposed, neither side is going to agree to. And I, I think where we are right now, the, the players uh, talked on Tuesday uh, and, and really have been trying to sort of set up what the next thing they're going to do is. And I believe by the end of the week, we are likely to see some sort of a counter offer by the players. And it would be their first since December 1st. Um, and, and and I think that's going to give us a sense. This listen, this is not going to be accepted. the The owners are not going to sit here and say, "Well, we take everything you guys say, and we're going to do it just because we want a season." But but this is going to be an an interesting insight for me into where the players are right now and just how much they're willing to push and give back to the league and try and find that middle point, or if they still feel like. The clock is on their side for when the real deadline is. Now, before we started, uh, you, as we were both doing doom and gloom to some degree, you actually said that there's a seed of hope from your perspective. What would that be? Okay. I think the seed of hope is this, that if there is some kind of, and I'm not going to use the word stalemate because uh, that is a, a legal term as is impasse, but if there is no hope of either side moving on this and they're just talking past one another. At some point, you would have to think there's going to be a third party 
that would get involved in this. Um, now, I don't think we're at that point right now, but the possibility uh, not only exists, but has happened in the past where uh, when something like games are getting threatened, all of a sudden uh, you see politicians step up and start talking about it. And if there's some sort of intervention there, again, we're not there at this point. And I think both sides hope that we don't get there, but in terms of salvaging a season and salvaging games being played, that right now I think is is not a likely possibility, but a realistic one, one that could be on the table if the sides continue to dig in the way that they have. Do you have some sense of who that person, which uh, what entity would that be? I mean, it could be the National Labor Relations Board. It could be the Department of Labor. You know, there are a lot of people involved in in labor and a lot of lawyers who believe that they could mediate this. But you think it would be somebody who would be politically acceptable on both sides. So uh, we'll see. I Listen, I hope we don't get there, Buster. I, I hope that there is some progress made and... I think I think the beginning of progress, if it is to be made, is likeliest to start not with this next offer from the players, but with what Major League Baseball's reaction to it is. If Major League Baseball and the owners feel like the players at least made some sort of a move on this one in the right direction, then their counter to, to this offer that's upcoming. I know I'm, I'm speaking like two offers down the road now. They're counter to this one that hasn't been made yet, but that we're anticipating could push in the right direction. And then it's back on the players to see ultimately what they really want. And, and I don't say that pejoratively. The players want a lot at this point, and I understand why they want a lot. But I think what people on the league side and in ownership circles especially have been waiting for is to understand, okay, what's the big ask in this CBA going to be from the players? It's not that it just has to be one necessarily, but I think players will acknowledge that as much as they would like to get back everything that they've lost in one fell swoop, realistically, this is going to be a more incremental collective bargaining agreement than I think some of the zealots would prefer to have. I completely agree with you uh, about that, that, uh, you know, the response from the owners will be very telling about exactly where this stands. Will they remain in their bunker or will they begin to coax out? <laughs> will there begin to be a little bit of movement out of the bunkers to talk? I was going to, when you talked about the third party being involved, the stories from the 94, 95 player strike are legendary when they were yep. all invited to the white house. And I think after about five minutes, the white house the White House folks there, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, I think were among them are like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're wasting time with this relationship. <laughs> you know, it because, uh, you know, Bill Clinton and his personality, he thought he was going to pull the two sides together, you know, because he tried to negotiate Middle East peace. Of course, baseball would have to be easier. Forget it. <laughs> and that's um, and, and that's the thing. I mean, this is the worst the relationship has been since 94, 95. There's a reason why we're in the first work stoppage since the strike uh, that canceled the World Series. But uh, I, I just, I, I don't think we are yet at that point of the nuclear option needing to be uh, triggered by either side. But but let's let's be 
clear about this. If a independent political figure buster comes in and tries to talk, is either side in the position to say no? No. And in fact, my own theory about that meeting last week was there was no chance that it was going to move the ball forward. What was really going on was, to some degree, both leaders on both sides saying, yeah, we talked so that they could tell the people they work for, yeah, we talked. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, and sometimes that's that's part of this thing. Sometimes it's, hey, we should be saying one thing to one another while we say another thing to our constituency. That's sometimes how this works. I don't know that Major League Baseball and the Players Association right now have that type of working relationship. I think that relationship honestly existed in the last couple of basic agreements where, uh, you know, these got done without a whole lot of hassle. And, well, you see why players are as radicalized as they are right now, because the last couple of basic agreements have generally not been particularly good for the players and clubs have taken advantage of that. And so I, I think the conviviality of those relationships that were there are not there anymore directly as a result of what happened and what the upshot was in those basic agreements. Which leads perfectly into my last question. We got about a minute left. What is the mechanism as you see these negotiations now, or who is the mechanic uh, who's going to break this stalemate? Because that's where I, what I struggle with. I just don't see that person, uh, that you know, that uh, that item that I think will be like, okay, that's going to push it across. I don't think the person exists. Uh, Let's get that out of the way. I have, I have asked that. I have said to to so many people. both in the middle of and on the outside of the process, who's going to be the figure that cuts through all of the animus? And the answer is no one. What is the issue? Listen, I think we're still too early to know for sure what it is. But from all of the conversations that I had leading up to a story I wrote a couple of weeks ago, The competitive balance tax threshold came up again and again and again as something that could move and could move demonstrably. Now, when I brought that up to people on the owner side, um, they were saying, no, 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 no. Owners aren't going to move. Think about it. They only went from 210 to 214 in their first offer. But I I do wonder if if there's a CBT threshold up at 230 to 230 going up right now, the league is at 214. Right now, the union is at 245. If we could get to 235, 230 maybe, and start moving upward from there, I think that's somewhere that could be mutually acceptable uh, and give the players a really big win. I totally agree with you. And when you really think about it, I want to see if you agree with me on this. When you really apply those numbers to where teams have been in recent years, what are we talking about? A difference of 30 to $50 million per winter in terms of what teams are spending and where they're moving. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, it's At not the a top? lot. I mean, I mean, I mean, to me, to me, a, a, a secret sauce here would be a significantly higher minimum 
and a CBT threshold that's higher because that incentivizes teams, you know, that are around the $200 million mark to maybe spend an extra 15, 20, $25 million. And the, the higher minimum uh, really affects uh, a majority. I mean, literally a majority of major league players and puts money in their pocket uh, for careers that seem to be shorter and shorter. Well, I'm glad you and I agreed on the terms and hopefully that uh, folks listen to this podcast and make the deal. Uh, <laughs> there, hey, hey, there's, uh, let me just say this. There's a lot more than CVT and minimums, but at very least that seems like a place that would make sense for everyone involved, a reasonable, rational, pragmatic place to start. All right, Jeff. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Hey, Buster, we're not solving world peace here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Bleacher tweets. We have a great one right off the bat. PK Steinberg at PK Steinberg on Twitter. Since you're ranking the top MLB players, how about ranking each of the following based on their actual power in labor negotiations? Rank from the following MLB, MLBPA, Manfred, and the fans. Well, I'm going to go individual owners, number one, because they clearly, uh, having gained so much financial landscape in the last negotiation uh, in the end of 2016, they have the ability to step in and say, you know what, we're going to can make concessions. We're going to give the uh, the player association more of what they want. So, you know, the likes of Artie Moreno and Bill DeWitt and Hal Steinbrenner, those guys would be number one in the power rankings. Number two would be agent Scott Boris. So I think has a lot of influence and in, as to what's going on here. Uh, most of the executive committee, uh, for where the player association is made up of Scott Boris clients. Uh, and he is perceived by a lot of other folks in the union on major league baseball side is having a lot of influence as to what's going on. Number three, I'd say Bruce Meyer, who's the lead negotiator for the players association. Number four is Max Scherzer. Uh, I think he's got influence among the players. You know, he's, he's viewed generally speaking as the number one player in these talks. Although Andrew Miller was a representative of the players uh, in that December 1st meeting that lasted seven minutes. I think Max is, a, is an important voice in this. I'd actually put Rob Manfred behind those four or that four, those four groups uh, because he's a lawyer for the owners. He's going to do what the owners, owners want. He's taking marching orders for them. And there's no doubt about it in the power rankings, the fans are last. Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew. Hey, Buster, since no contact is allowed between teams and players, would any of those guys get in trouble for using an intermediary? For instance, can Aaron Judge go to Joe Schmo and then Joe Schmo talk to Aaron Boone? Yeah, I think you theoretically could get in trouble for using an intermediary. <laughs> I mean, that would be really hard to prove, right, Sarah? Like if I wanted to find out how Taylor Schwenk was doing and I was forbidden because he's on vacation from reaching out to Taylor and I reached out to you and, and uh, talked to you and you talked to Taylor, I could get a general update as to what was going on. Who's going to track that? In this world, paper trails are everything. So, I mean, I always wonder about like screenshots, if they're texting it to each other. I think that's the only way it could potentially get traced back to them. But yeah. I mean, I don't know who would rat them out for that or who would even dig that deep. Yeah, exactly. Let's say that uh, Aaron Boone was uh, Aaron Boone wanted to find out a, about a rehabbing Yankee player, and he just reached out to a friend of the Yankee player and said, "Hey, tell me what you got. What have you heard?" As you say, there wouldn't be any paper trail. That type of conversation. New year, not new Matt. It's my birthday weekend, a weekend I usually spend planning baseball trips for the next year. 
but I'm not committing dollars until we know a season start date. How much are owners realistically losing holding out? And do they even care? Uh, they would lose a lot if they lose the start of the season. And that's just in terms of the immediate game checks. But I also believe that they would do significant damage to their own product. I, I think if the baseball season doesn't start on time, in the middle of a pandemic, that there would be very there would be very few people who would feel sorry for them, um, you know, and feel sorry for either side for that matter. So would you tell New Year, not New Matt to start booking hotels? No, don't book hotels. <laughs> I'm really pessimistic. I, do, I just don't see the as I was talking about with Jeff, I just don't see the, the person, the mechanism that's going to lead to a deal that has not even begun to evolve before our eyes. John Tollender at John Tollender on Twitter. Am I wrong for thinking that big market owners should align more with the MLBPA rather than small market owners? Boston, New York Yankees, New York Mets, LA Dodgers, etc. don't care what they spend and just want to win, while Cleveland, Tampa Bay, Pittsburgh, Oakland, etc. are just trying to profit. And John, that absolutely is one of the, uh, the fault lines that's always existed in these negotiations in 94-95. The, play, the problem wasn't really uh, a disagreement between the players in Major League Baseball. The problem was a disagreement between the big owners and the small owners. The players will always align, without a doubt, with the big market teams more closely because those are the teams that are going to spend the most money. Where, on the other hand, you have uh, some of the small market teams who uh, want to have lower payrolls. And so often we're seeing the small market teams involved in tanking, which is uh, something that's you know, really important to the player association in this negotiation. Before we leave Buster, you mentioned you're in Big Sky. I know that's where Taylor is. Have you ran into him yet? <laughs> no, uh, it is a big state under the Big Sky. <laughs> and I bet you if I did run into him, he would be mortified. Like, oh my God, I thought I got away from this guy. You know, during the baseball season, he'd always joke that I he would talk to me more than he would his wife. Uh, you know, on a daily basis sometimes. So I'm sure, Sarah, that he's greatly relieved that he doesn't have to deal with me. <laughs> so how has been Big Sky been? Have you been skiing awesome. or? Yeah, with... went to Big Sky uh, with friends the other day and I did not go skiing. I still need to, I, I haven't gone skiing since I was seven or eight years old. Uh, you know, I've gone cross country skiing, which is very different. But after going to Big Sky, I'm thinking that I'll be able to do it sometime. Are you a skier? Oh, no, I can barely walk without falling. And eye coordination's not my strong suit. I think I would look like a baby giraffe learning to walk for the first time if I tried. <laughs> Definitely the next time I try to get on skis, that will be the case. I have no doubt it's going to be ugly, but I have a I have a niece who's an instructor in Vermont, and I'm going to be going up there over the next few weeks. Well, I mean, what the heck? It looks like I'm not going to have any spring training to go to. Well, that's it for today. My thanks. To Genevieve, to Jeff, to Sarah, to Sarah. Sarah, thanks for taking over today. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one and done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. 
Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.